is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Here today with uh, Mr. Robert Rosen. He is the author of his latest book. It's called Bobby in Nazi Land. Uh, he's also written several other books, including Nowhere Man, which is uh, about the final days of John Lennon, and Beaver Street, the history of modern pornography. And uh, that's going to be one we focus on today. Uh, Bobby, uh, sorry, Robert, thanks for being with me today. Yeah, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, I listen to your podcast. You sound like an interesting guy that we probably disagree on a whole lot of things. I, I assume so. I, I assume we disagree in quite a bit, but I'm, I, I think we probably agree on some of the um, key fundamental matters like freedom of speech and things like that, which is yeah, why it's... I, well, I agree with that. Yeah, which is why it's interesting to talk about. Cool. Um, let's start off with... Speaking about your um, the Beaver Street book, the history of uh, the in-depth look into the modern pornography industry and your your trajectory in that field, what is um, talk to us about sort of your start in, in the porn industry and you know brief overview of your career and and the, the jobs you had along the way. Well, before going into porn, I was uh, a straightforward freelance writer. I had mm -hmm. written for a lot of different publications like Mother Jones, the Soho Weekly News, uh, a lot of local papers. And I was even a speechwriter for the Secretary of the Air Force in 1975. And uh, yeah, I was just uh, a working writer. And then uh, at a certain point, my work dried up and I was looking for work. It's around the early 1980s, 1983, early 1983. And all of a sudden, in the help wanted ads in the newspapers, there were all these jobs for, they didn't call it porn. Uh, I think the phrase they used was um, men's magazines, adult entertainment, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, so I applied for an, um, an editorial job and it turned out to be with High Society Magazine. Now, I'd never heard of it before then, and it was just, pretty much um, a porn magazine with uh, what is known in the trade as a lot of split beaver photos. Um, they were kind of a second rate hustler. You know, that's who they aspired to, you know, to be. Um, now, what happened was uh, this thing called, called free phone sex had just come into existence. Uh, this what year was that? This was 1983. This is like uh, April 1983 that they hired me. And what happened was the government broke up the phone company monopoly, which was uh, AT&T. Right. And, you know, they had all these phone lines where you called an 800 number for like 15 cents and you got like the horoscope or sp sports scores and that kind of thing. And these lines were put into a lottery and the publisher of High Society Magazine, his name was Carl 
uh, Rudiman. He's currently being investigated for fraud. His um, after he got out of the porno business, he went into um, the investment business and uh, he embezzled a few hundred million dollars wow. in in Florida. And uh, you know, it, there's a lot of stuff going on with uh, his company, which I think is called Global Capital, and they just mm-hmm. embezzled all this money. But any at the time, 1983, he entered this lottery and he got all these phone lines, which he could do whatever he wanted with. And he came up with the concept of, of phone sex. And he had porn models record, you know, dirty tapes, you know, mm-hmm. breathing heavily, having orgasms, that kind of thing. And um, he launched the free phone sex and he started making uh, a fortune. He was like, he was taking in, I think at the time, $100,000 per week for free phone sex. This was based on like two cents a call that he split with the phone company. And you know, he got two cents. I think the phone company got 20 cents or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the uh, mm-hmm. exact numbers. It was a long time ago now, but there was a flood of money coming in to High Society magazine through free phone sex. And uh, he was able to hire all these people. And uh, I was one of the people who he hired and I needed a job and they offered me a job and I took it. I lasted at high society about a year. And, you know, I didn't really think that I was going to have a long career as a pornographer, but my porno career went on for 16 years until I published nowhere, man. And I was able to leave. Interesting. With with the phone sex thing. So was his his phone sex was subsidizing to a certain extent, the, uh, High Society Magazine, or was High Society Magazine also very profitable? High Society Magazine was profitable, but Phone Sex was making so much money Absolutely that it became terms. the main business. Wow! And was the uh, you said that they were were they they weren't pre recorded? It was a live person that they no were no they were pre recorded. Oh, they were pre recorded. Right, they would have porn stars come in uh-huh. and go into a recording studio mm-hmm. and record tapes, and this was the first fusion of computers and pornography right that before the phone sex lines happened before he was able to get the lines from the phone companies he had come up with the idea for for phone sex and what he tried doing was he tried using um like a few hundred answering machines with these tapes of the same kind of thing but it didn't work it was just you know there was too much traffic coming in for the answering machines to keep up with it wow. and he had to stop and uh these phone sex lines winning the lottery for the phone sex lines was like a gift from heaven and uh it just completely changed the business that's unbelievable so people called in to listen to these pre-recorded um make it basically actors just just to hear them sort of they had almost like a monologue of you know, of, uh, of a woman having orgasms and stuff. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, part of my job was to write the, the scripts for the porn stars to read, you know, that was played over the phone. That's fascinating. It reminds me of the, uh, the Seinfeld episode. I'm not sure if you've seen it where, where he he's dating a woman and the voice sounds very familiar. And she was from the phone sex line. I don't know if you've seen that one. Oh no, I didn't <laughs> see that one. You know, that show went on for nine years. I got yeah. bored with it after about two. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Um, I'll have so to check out that episode. Yeah, that, that's that's a, that's a pretty good one. The so so then a, after the um, 
after high society, which was probably, was it like a top five in its industry or was it high society magazine? Like, so there's hustler and there's playboy. So it was sort of in that echelon of. Yeah. High society. It was, I don't know about the top five, but in terms, they sold about 400,000 per month. And, you know, it was certainly behind playboy penthouse hustler. And, uh, you know, there were magazines like club and, uh, a few others but you know it was up there and, and then, you know there was a huge amount of, of money coming in we were getting profiled in forbes magazine wow. as just this like you know brilliant new business and, and it was really just a, a sleazy porn magazine and you know they were treating it like it was some kind of genius and what he did yeah that we'll talk about this more later but carl rudiman the publisher currently under indictment for embezzlement um he was one of those people, he was kind of schizophrenic, that he wanted high society to be a household name, like Playboy. Right. And he wanted to be Hugh Hefner, but he didn't want to be known. So he, he hid behind um, a, a figurehead publisher, Gloria Leonard, who was a porn star. So she acted as the publisher. She was the public face of the magazine. And, um, you know, he was the one who made all the money. And... He really wanted to overtake Hustler and be the king of the Split Beaver magazines. And um, uh, Split Beaver refers to what? Is that that's just really, sort of like full frontal? The Split Beaver. Uh, it's open vagina, which you know when the like gynecological shots of a vagina. Okay. Okay. So that I'm was, sure you've that, seen it. That was yeah. This is, <laughs> that, that must have, that must have been quite a uh, uh, I guess I. Almost a revolutionary thing, I imagine, right? Because probably before that, they probably had a rule that you can have that, right? It was probably more like the the old. No, Hustler way. paved the way. You know, oh, they did. Okay. Now, Hustler had been doing it, you know, for many years, mm -hmm. and you know, we were just trying to imitate Hustler, and particularly because of the phone sex, particularly because he was making so much money with the mm -hmm. phone sex. He was also very paranoid. He thought that Larry Flint had somehow. Um, planted spies in the company mm -hmm. and he was just like always very paranoid and he did succeed in really pissing off Larry Flint who made him I think it was November 1983 made him hustlers asshole of the month mm -hmm. and he just left the country Rudiman left the country until that issue of hustler vanished from the newsstands wow interesting and, uh, you know it was just this really intense competition that's very interesting and by this time, there's still not, correct me if I'm wrong, is there still not allowed uh, to be published actual sex, like like actual uh, like penetration in the magazine? Uh, no, that uh, changed around 2000 after I had left. 2000? Yeah. Oh, I yeah, it's that. been going on for 21 years, except the thing is that you don't really see newsstand porn magazines right i think they're still out there to some degree but around 2000 all the magazines except for playboy you know including penthouse they started showing penetration and com shots that's a lot later than thing. i thought I, I thought you were going to say like maybe the late 80s or something like that so 2000 that's no no that you know the rules were very strict that if you wanted to be displayed on the newsstand um there could be no penetration hmm and the only one that seemed to somehow get around that was Screw. But that was more of a, a local newspaper in New York than uh, a national magazine. So, you know, maybe that has something to do with it. And uh, 
you know, it's not like the porn industry was controlled by the mafia, but the newsstands were. That was like uh, a big mafia business. And, you know, somehow Screw was able to get their magazine on the newsstand and they had penetration going back to the 1960s. Wow, that's crazy. Huh. Good name of magazines for sure. Gets a point across. <laughs> what what did you do after the uh, so after you left um, high society? You went to work for Screw. Was for it was it next stop? I went to work for the um, for the Swank Corporation, Flag. and they published all kinds of men's magazines. They had more titles than I could keep track of. I became the managing editor for Stag, and that was the original men's magazine they um preceded playboy they were out there before playboy and as a matter of fact when hefner started playboy he wanted to call it stag party but he couldn't do it because you know because stag was already out there right 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 would cause confusion so i was you know managing editor for stag and um this company was owned by charles goodman chip goodman we called mm-hmm. him. Uh, his father was Martin Goodman, who was the founder of Marvel Comics. Right. And at one point, Marvel Comics and the and the men's magazines were the same company. Um, eventually, you know, Marvel got sold off, and the men's magazines continued. And uh, you know, it's a very complicated story. I detail it in Beaver Street mm-hmm. in uh, a chapter called "The Secret History," uh, which was like you know, after Marvel Comics vanished and you know became a separate company and became you know a famous company right uh, well it, you know they were famous at the time when martin goodman owned them you know with uh, uh the superheroes the fantastic four captain right. america all those guys um yeah that at that point they never talked about it you know they, they never, never talked, talked about the stag connection they did that at stag at swank they almost never talked about about Marvel Comics, that if you work there, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of heard little bits and pieces, and there were people still working there who worked there when they had Marvel Comics. And, you know, you would just pick up little pieces of the history by overhearing random conversations. Mm-hmm. And when I was writing the book, it took a tremendous amount of, of research to put the whole story together that, right. you know, it almost didn't seem possible that there was some kind of an association between this uh, sleazy porn company and, uh, you know, this multi-million dollar, super famous, um, you know, thing with the superheroes. Right. But, you know, it was true. And it was the same family. Very interesting story. And, uh, you know, Chip Goodman really loved comics in the porn magazine, he had a thing for comics. And, mm. you know, that was obviously because of um, the Marvel Comics connection. But, right. you know, again, he never he never spoke about it, but he just kind of knew Chip likes comics. Mm-hmm. Well, so when uh, it was, it's Mark Goodman, right? That was the father, Mark? Martin Goodman. Martin. So Martin owned, he owned Stag. So was it true that, so he owned Stag and Marvel at the same time, among other magazines. Um, was it true that Marvel, because it got off to maybe a rocky start, was some somehow subsidized by some of the profits earning being earned by yes. Stag? Yeah, that um, the comic books mm-hmm. at certain points they were not making money, and they were subsidized by the uh, the men's magazines like uh, like 
like Stag for Men Only, uh, a bunch of other titles like that. Um, these magazines, when they were men's magazines, had people like Bruce J. Friedman and Mario Puzo mm-hmm. creating them. Right, the writer of The Godfather. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, Mario Puzo wrote, got the advance for writing The Godfather when he was working for Martin Goodman. Mm-hmm. And Stag was, so when did it go from being like a, uh, a GQ Esquire type to showing Naked Woman? Was that during Martin Goodman's ownership of it? No. Okay. No, Martin Goodman was almost prudish that mm-hmm. when, you know, he was in charge, you, you absolutely couldn't show pubic hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Martin Goodman might have gone as far as showing nipples, you know, topless women. Uh, you know, the, it started changing in the 1970s when Ship took over. Okay. After Martin Goodman retired. And he started promoting the, the pornographic elements of it. Yeah, that, yeah. you know, at first it was softcore, and yeah. then it got, you know, harder and harder with the split beaver and all that. And, you know, by the time um, you know, I started working there, which was, let's see, August 1984, mm-hmm. that it was pretty much, you know, all sp- split beaver and uh, hard penises, mm-hmm. but never touching. Right, right. It just, it just fascinates me that there, if there was a uh, overlap between <laughs> this, this, uh, famous magazine that later became you know like a porno magazine that was helping subsidize marvel which you know the marvel ip is basically some of the most valuable intellectual property ever right and so (laughs) that's coming off the back of a magazine which later became a porno magazine just is just a a very funny thought yeah it's um you know it's a a strange a, a strange history now what the porno magazines were doing when Chip was there is that there was this on top of the porno magazines there was this whole division of what we called the straight magazines uh new body country accents you know that kind of thing home decorating magazines bridal magazines fitness magazines right straight and, as in like sort of like vanilla right like as a, uh, like risque they were that, that like you know knockoffs of Vogue and okay. um, you know that kind of thing Mm-hmm. knockoffs of Condé Nast magazines, mm-hmm. you know, schlocky versions of Condé Nast magazines. But um, Chip would hire people away from Condé Nast to edit these magazines. And it was the porn magazines that were subsidizing the straight magazines. Mm-hmm. And he tried to keep it completely separate. At one point, the straight magazines had their own entrance to the office. And, you know, he tried to make it look like there was no connection between right, the right. porn and the straight magazines. And the people editing the straight magazines, they were mostly women. Uh, you know, they just had kind of a snooty attitude towards the porn magazines, even though we were the ones paying the bills. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, that was just uh, the nature of the job there. And uh, it went on like that until the early 90s when, see, it was about 92. Two, yeah, yeah. 92, 93, Chip sold the porn magazines to this guy, Lou Peretta, who took all the porn magazines, moved them out to Jersey, and he was a printer. And it became more of a, a printing business than a publishing business that once Lou took over the magazines, um, his whole reason for taking over the magazines was he wanted to keep his presses running 24-7. And the porn magazines were just fodder to keep the presses running 24-7. And we just had to crank more magazines faster and faster. And New it titles, was just like, you know, really like a sweatshop. 
was like me? new brand was a new brand by more magazines you mean like new brands of he would just keep coming up with new titles mm -hmm. and buying more magazines and we just had to keep producing them and throwing them together faster and faster we were just feeding this thing that was insatiable that you know the presses had to run 24 7 and uh you know that was how he made his money that if he didn't own the printing presses you can make a profit by selling approximately 30 percent of your press run if you own the presses you only had to sell like 15 percent to make a profit so the quality kept going down the circulation kept going down and we just kept doing more and more magazines smaller and smaller press runs that's interesting. When did you switch like over? That. I left in 1999. And when did you switch over? I know you mentioned a couple of times in the book where you were sort of a uh, a voyeur and then a, and also a participant in the scene. But you were when did you switch over to sort of like um, it seems like you sort of coordinated scenes or something of that nature with the actual photo shoots and all that or the films? Um, well, you know, for every you know for for each of the different magazines for each uh, you know. For each month, I had to produce shoots to fill the magazine. So mm -hmm. I'd go to Europe and I'd direct shoots. I'd go to California, I'd direct shoots. And there was a certain point pretty early in my career where you know, I was at Swank for maybe uh, uh, less than a year. And this was probably 1985. And I decided as an experiment in participatory journalism that I wanted to get in front of the camera and see what it was like to be a porn star. This was, you know, just to give me material, something to write about that no journalist, as far as I knew, had ever tried doing this. That, you know, there were journalists who wrote about the porn industry, but they never did it from the perspective of a porn star. Okay. And I tried that once to see what it was like to, you know, see what's going through a porn stud's head when he's performing. And you know, what I realized was I was just not cut out to be a porn star. I was too cerebral for that. I could not like turn off my brain and, you know, forget about the camera, forget about the lights, forget about all that stuff, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, you read the book, I read a chapter about, you know, my experience attempting to be a porn star. And I called that chapter, the accidental porn star. Mm -hmm. And I just found it kind of, you know, a very uh, humiliating experience. And, you know, the most interesting thing about it was the way that people who worked on the porn magazines reacted to me in the office, you know, after these pictures of my attempt at being a porn star were published. And you know, it was like, there was this, this uncrossable boundary between right. the people who produced the magazines and the people who performed in the magazines. And, you know, I had crossed that boundary as an experiment. And that, was, that was a taboo. Pardon me? That was a taboo for them. Yeah. 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 That because I had, today you would be, you would be given a, a reality TV show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're rewarded. <laughs> right. You know, this was 1985. People right. didn't see it that way. You know, the, uh, the consciousness of the people who do this kind of thing has evolved quite a bit since 1985. Right. W with respect to the um, going to the locations were there. So were, were, you were filming sort of, you would go there and there would be sort of like, they'd be acting out a scene in picture format or would, would you be there to like, um, coordinate the filming video, a pornographic You're talking video. about when I directed shoots? Yes. 
yeah, I'd come up with the idea for the shoots. Okay. I'd write out like kind of a script, you know, they do this, they do this, they do this. Um, I would choose the models mm-hmm. and, you know, I'd go there and I'd tell them what to do and they'd do it. It's just a film. It's a film then. No, no, it was, it was, it was, was still photography. Still photography. Okay. Yes, okay. it was. It was. It was still photography for a photo shoot. You know, for the magazine. You right, know, for right, the cover okay. for the centerfold, whatever. Mm-hmm. What's uh, what's the deal with fluffers? Was that a real thing? Uh, yeah, but only when they were shooting porn movies. You know, okay. still shoots. There were no fluffers. The, okay. uh, you know, for the boy girl shoots, as they were called. Uh, in general, these guys were like real professionals, and they did not require fluffers. They did a fluffer. Okay, they're pros. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, on on the set of a porn movie, you know, yeah, yeah. they had fluffers. They did. Uh, okay. All right. So that was that was a myth. Interesting. What, what's what's the uh, most bizarre sh- shoots that you witnessed or partook in? The most bizarre shoots. You mentioned something in the book about like a a woman with a like some sort of like with a dog or <laughs> in the beginning of the book. Well, you know, like bestiality. Kind okay, of. there was a problem with Canadian censorship that uh-huh. at a certain point the Canadian rules got very very strict and we had to do two separate issues. You know, one that went into Canada. And one that went into the into the United States, where the rules were looser. And uh, at the beginning, in the um, you know from like 1983 through about 1986, maybe that you know we could still do this um, really nasty um, the S and M stuff. Mm-hmm. And I directed, or you know, but yeah, I directed a couple of those shoots that took place in dungeons and, you know, things like that, you know, but for the most part, uh, as, as the magazines became more niche, I guess you could say mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, they were like a shave magazine, a magazine for people who like asses, uh, a right. magazine for people who like big tits, who like small tits, like, you know, for every mm-hmm. fetish, there was a separate magazine. Mm-hmm. And, there was no tentacle yeah. porn back then, right? There was no what? No tentacle porn. You're, <laughs> have you heard tentacle about that? Porn? Tentacle porn? I don't know porn. what that is. Oh, okay. That that's a thing that came out a few years ago. It's like a, I think it's a Japanese thing with like they have like they'll have like an anime character and like I guess I guess people like to get off on like a like these tentacles like wrapping themselves around the anime character or something like that. No, we didn't do that. No, they got more creative than people. <laughs> yeah, they just, you know, I, I guess they just kept coming up with more and more stuff. But when I was doing it, there were all these fetish magazines. And I just, you know, I had to come up. I was doing a, sh- a shave magazine, a couple of shave magazines, a couple of large breasted magazines, uh-huh. uh, a couple of magazines for fat women. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those were my three main categories, shaved, large breasts, and fat. And, uh, you know, not that this kind of thing appeal to me the large breasted magazines they started going you know, in the late 80s early 90s they started going crazy with the silicon and these porn stars just kept on having one operation after another and they just kept on getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it was just these like massive unbelievable you know 98 yeah. quadruple z silicon breasts no. and you know that's what people wanted and uh that, I, oh yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, I, I was just given the, I was, you know, just doing my job, giving the people what they wanted and, you know, making a living that way. And, you know, I mean, I was as shocked as anybody that, you know, this kind of thing went on for 16 years. Yeah. I, was, I, I you were probably, uh, you, you probably exited before the furry thing too, I imagine, right? Yes. Yes. I exited <laughs> about that. before that, I'm happy to say. <laughs> you know, by the time I finally left, you know, after I finally got that book deal for Nowhere Man, that this was 1999, September 1999, and I had begun in April 1984, mm -hmm. and I pretty much went nonstop, and I was just so sick of looking at pornography mm -hmm. professionally for all those years, every day, eight hours a day, that I think it took f five years before I could finally look at it, you know, okay. without just feeling I was working. What kind of yeah. mental toll? Did they take a mental toll on you at all? Were there any oh, like- Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that it was just like, I mean, not so much. Well, you know, the fact that we were working an assembly line and the assembly line just kept going faster and faster and they were demanding more. And I was closing a magazine per week. It was just non-stop that way. And it was really a burnout pace. And when- you know, the internet started kicking in and they were taking business from the magazines. Right. They were slowly but surely killing the magazines. Right. The, 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 the budgets were going down and I was under like, you know, more and more pressure to get people to work for less and less money. And, you know, the result was just some really bad looking stuff that I did not enjoy looking at. You know, these were not like, you know, beautiful women. These were just... You know, people who were hired cheap and, you know, you know, the photographers were, you know, were grinding it out for less money. You don't get the best photographers. You don't get the best models. And it was just like some really depressing looking stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it took a mental toll for sure. It's like the transition from the, uh, from the silent movies to the talkies, right? <laughs> uh, you know, well, you know, going from, uh, yeah, you know, it killed the magazine business. Yeah. You know, like I said before, that you just almost never see uh, a porn magazine on the newsstands. You right. know, that I, I don't know how many are still, are still publishing, you know, actually printing. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I can't think of more than two of them. Uh, you know, obviously like Playboy and I guess, um, I think, Penthouse is still around, probably. I guess. Uh, I think yeah. it is. You know, yeah. but you don't see yeah. it. No one. Yeah, no one. Yeah, no. I wouldn't know where to look for it. Yeah, no one cares. Um, one of the interesting parts of your book, which I wanted to talk to you about, because uh, you actually uh, illuminated some of the the history, the details of the history that I didn't know about in terms of the efforts that were mostly coming from the right wing at the time, the whole moral majority crowd, to basically um, censor pornography and cancel places that uh that would sell magazines like including like 7-eleven things of that nature can you talk a little bit about that can you talk about the sort of major efforts in the 70s and 80s that were meant to sort of uh eliminate the entire industry well let me begin by saying that as long as there's been pornography which is you know pretty much been forever mm -hmm. there have been people who have tried to stop pornography and in in the 1970s um there was a porn commission that was actually started by lyndon johnson when uh 
you know, his, 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 um, his popularity started crashing with the reaction to the uh, never ending Vietnam War, and he just became, you know, a very unpopular president. Right. So what he did was he launched a commission to um, investigate porn. And that commission was, it was taken over when Nixon became president and him and his vice president, Spiro Agnew, two of the most uh, you know, corrupt politicians in history, um, they were you know, very anti-porn and uh, the people on the commission were chosen by Johnson and you know, they were pretty liberal and they were you know, conducting um, you know, research that, uh, you know, they were trying to get, you know, an accurate uh, representation of, you know, how people reacted to porn and that kind of thing. And what their researchers came up with was that porn was not harmful. And, uh, you know, the the best thing to do would be to have no anti-porn laws because it was just a waste of time and you couldn't stop it. But Nixon and Agnew, were very anti-porn. They added their own people to the commission. And um, uh, they tried, when they were going to publish the results of the liberal researchers, you know, Nixon and Agnew tried to, to, to stop it, but it was published anyway. And uh, the Porn Commission book that they put out is one of the most outrageous examples of pornography ever printed. It just had, you know, examples of every kind of pornography that there was, including child pornography. It just became a go-to text for porn editors to consult when they wanted to come up with ideas for pornography. Mm -hmm. And that was the 1970s. Then when, when Reagan became president, uh, he formed the Mies Commission. And, uh, uh, he put in charge the attorney general, Edwin Meese. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of the Meese Commission was to uh, show how bad pornography was. And they kind of fixated on violent porn and child porn and animal porn, which was certainly out there, but it was just like little percentage of... Um, of the porn industry, right. you know, most of the porn, you know, being created was, you know, straightforward, you know, man, woman porn with um, adult actors. Right. And uh, the, the Mies commission, you know, that he kind of, he's, you know, Mies stacked the commission with, you know, all these, with all these anti-porn people. And, uh, you know, they put out um, a report that, uh, said you know that porn was horrible and had to be you know and had to be be stopped now what was happening in the middle of the Mies commission investigation you know they were going from town to town traveling throughout the united states having people testify mm-hmm. about how harmful porn was mm-hmm. uh in the middle of all this the tracy lords scandal broke tracy lords beginning around 19 19- 84 or so 1985 became the most popular porn star the uh you know the that the porn industry had ever known uh, you know that if you put tracy lords on the cover the magazine sold that when i was at swank tracy 
at least one picture of Tracy Lords was in every single magazine that the Swank Corporation published. And she did this for three years. She made porn movies. She was just everywhere. You know, she was, she, you know, she became part of the, the DNA of the porn industry. And after three years, it turned out that the entire time she had been doing porn, she was, she was underage. And um, because for three years, her picture was in every single magazine anybody ever published. And in like hundreds and hundreds of porn movies, it was like somebody waved a magic wand and, and overnight, Right, that's a, that's a criminal felony now. Yeah. child pornography. Right. And, you know, it all had to be dis destroyed. And, uh, you know, she kind of bore out what the Mies Commission was saying. She became the public face of the Mies Commission, the mm -hmm. child porn star. Mm -hmm. You know, but Tracy Lords was basically a, ju a juvenile delinquent who was able to get a, a fraudulent passport, a fraudulent, a fraudulent driver's license that said she was like, 21 years old when she was actually 16. Right, right. And uh, what happened was that people that, you know, because Tracy Lords made all these headlines, uh, that, that the sales for porn magazines actually skyrocketed mm -hmm. because she created so much interest right, and controversy. in porn and these, you know, beautiful young women who made porn, everybody wanted to see more. And then you started getting magazines with titles like Just 18 and Barely Legal. And that was you know, all a result of Tracy Lords. And instead of, uh, of, the, of the Mies Commission and Tracy Lords destroying the porn industry, we started making even more money than we were making before. That's insane. With the, uh, what was this thing about they tried to swallow the salami. What was the story oh, with that? Swallow the salami. There was a oh, that the salami was, contests. Yeah, that was just, you know, some, uh, some photo shoot that we arranged in uh, a topless bar. And these, um, these, these topless dancers and porn stars were, you know, taking big pieces of salami right. and being photographed showing how much of the salami they uh, could get down their throats. Mm -hmm. That, you know, this goes back to Linda Lovelace and Deep Throat. And that the words, like Tracy Lords was in every porn magazine. You could not publish a porn magazine pretty much from Linda Lovelace on without uh, using the term Deep Throat somewhere, usually on mm -hmm. the cover. And like, you know, this was just some kind of stupid thing where, right. you know, porn stars were eating salami. And you know, actual salami. Did they they try to ban that? Is that right? No, they tried to no, 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 no. That no. was just uh, you know, it was pretty harmless. Yeah. That no, is... that's not what they tried to ban. No. It it was it was just with the um the Mies Commission had these recommendations that you mentioned in your book about like basically uh trying to pressure certain uh certain institutions like seven eleven and stuff not to have magazines and things like right. that. Right. Yeah, that's that you know they they pressured stores like I think, yes, Seven Eleven was one of them, and you know there were other chain stores. Yeah, where they put pressure on them, you know, not to have porn magazines. They'd arrest, you know, the the, the proprietors for selling hustler, that kind of thing. Wow, and you know it, it just made a, 
you know, the people in charge of circulation, it made them, you know, look for different outlets and they found them. And, you know, it didn't really stop. It's just this constant dance between pornography and the censors that, this, you know, this, this, the censors throw some new laws at you. And it's the pornographer's job to try to figure out how to get around the laws. And that's what we did. You know, there were always new rules coming down from Canada. You know, somebody was always coming up with some new kind of thing that you had to show photo identification, even though that didn't stop Tracy Lords. And it was just, it was just red tape that had to be cut through. And, you know, most of what pornography was, was trying to figure out how to get around the red tape and, uh, you know, how to do these shoots and mm -hmm. stay within the boundaries of the ever-changing laws. And right. it was fairly challenging. It was like almost like being an attorney. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One, of the, one of the interesting things fr from your book that I found was the you had basically the allies of sort of the porn industry were people like the ACLU and stuff, people who were really passionate about the First Amendment. Um, and then on the right, you had people saying like, uh, you know, oh, the First Amendment is just a technicality and this doesn't really apply and trying to get it banned uh, and, and saying that it doesn't have First Amendment protection. And then you fast forward to today and you, you see kind of the exact switch where you have people on the left, um, well, sort of the illiberal left, so basically trying to suppress information, cancel information, talking about like, uh, you know, get uh, feigning outrage over someone wearing a sombrero at a Halloween costume party in college, right? You have, so that, that was, that's been one of the really interesting things to me is to see that sort of switch. And although the porn industry, there's still sort of a... Um, there's still sort of a holdover with respect to the the port industry and and the sort of left in terms of their 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 sort of advocacy of sex workers right that's that's one of the sort of the alliance that was built in the 60s and 70s with the left and the port industry um the holdover is that well the left is still you know talks about sex workers rights and things of that nature but then on the other side they, the same kinds of people, which goes into the whole third wave feminism stuff, are very much against femininity in other aspects, right? So they're like against what? Pardon? Femininity, right? So, for example, like they, the same kinds of people. Uh, so the dominant sort of prevailing leftists are hate the Victoria's Secret Angels fashion show, right? Because right? they yeah. think it's the meaning towards women. And, you know, they, you know, they worship someone like Billie Eilish, who's like the kind of like the teen star of today's age, who basically dresses like a 12 year old boy did. She dresses like I used to do when I was, right? She's the anti uh, Did you see her on the cover of the, the British Vogue a couple of months ago? Yeah, that, that was, that was the first time that, that she sort of stepped, stepped out of that shell. But, you know, she's like her whole, her whole like facade and everything around her. She wears baggy clothing and she doesn't, portray yourself as like a Britney Spears type, right? Which was very popular when right. I was a kid, right? And and I don't know if you saw recently with the Olympics, the uh, the sort of Norwegian, I think it was the Norwegian uh, beach volleyball players want to wear shorts and not the the bikini outfit. And pink is like, oh yeah, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna pay for your fines because it's to me. So it's just, it's very interesting the sort of the the sort of new coalitions forming. And then I had I had my my last podcast on this Brandy Love issue, which was a complete coincidence. I know we we're gonna do this. And I sort of spoke, and there were there were a few sort of conservative talking heads that were sort of took the whole, um, you know, the I would say the more evangelical um, position on porn in general, right? Um, about how it has no place. It's 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 
not compatible with with a cons- any sort of conservatism things like that so then i started asking people around i asked a few groups i was in everyone was like yeah i don't really care i mean it's like you know i granted this was a this was a conference of minors and so for that reason we don't like it but in general like i don't care if, you know the porn star wants to be conservative like she can come to a adults conservative conference or something like that like you know it, it, it's very much that the libertarian strain has sort of taken over on, on the right and the right's always the one like arguing for free speech now so i just i just i just thought that those parallels were so interesting yeah well i think you got to give Trump credit for fucking porn stars. Because, like, you know, once the president starts fucking porn stars and, you know, it's a, a hard right president, then they're not going to criticize it. Right, right, but, right. Uh, you know, that's one thing Trump did. He, uh, that you know, is he one thing. Acceptance of pornography to the right wing. Yeah, and it's only pornography. I think it was, it's more, it's even deeper than that because, you know, as I mentioned my, my last show, it was like you had conservative evangelical types who, you know, had problems with aspects of his character. They don't, they don't, you know, they wouldn't condone, say, you know, the, their own child to sort of have that sort of lifestyle with five kids and three different women, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, I mean, they wouldn't prefer it rather, right? But they're willing to be like, and they had, they had many very conservative choices to choose from. They had Ted Cruz, they had Rick Santorum, they had Mike Huckabee, who's like a preacher. Um, and then they were like, no, you know, fuck that. I, I know this, this, I know the history of Trump. He's a New Yorker. He's, you know, a, swinging celebrity and did all this but um the bigger issues are where i side with him on so i'm going to overlook that shit and that was that was to me sort of one of the the most interesting defining moments and you know if you ask any conservative today they would go with trump who has 95 percent approval still among republicans over someone like Mitt romney who is a puritan in every respect right like been married to the same woman since he was like 17 or 18 not a hint of infidelity like very traditional you know, Puritan, Christian, well, Mormon type. Um, but people just perceive him as being sort of spineless and not representing their values. Um, so that was sort of, that was sort of the role reversal. That was sort of an interesting transition into like, okay, we don't we don't necessarily give a shit anymore about yeah. someone being a perfect uh, marital spouse or something like that. Like, are you going to do the things we care about or not? You know, and I, I think that's a um, I think that's a positive position for. For the party, obviously, you can you can still believe in morality and things of that nature, but uh, and it's important. Um, but just judging people based purely on, oh man, he cheated on his wife, you know, that makes him bad. Like, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad. And you know, furthermore, Trump was the uh, first. He was the first person running for president who became president who was on the gay marriage platform who who agreed with it. And so to this day, majority of Republicans support gay marriage. So those sorts of things. Um, you know, I was always on the right by always, you know, uh, you know, the, the anti-gay marriage thing never made sense to me. The, uh, you know, puritanical aspect never made sense to me. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad we made progress there, but no one seems to, uh, it's personally on the left, acknowledge that bit. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you want to like, sort of comment. Well, on. uh, politics itself, you know, Mitt Romney, Trump, uh, on top of whatever Mitt Romney's politics were, he was boring. And Trump, whatever you want to say about him, he's not boring. I mean, you know, he might be repulsive, you might hate him, but he's not boring. He knows how to get you to pay attention to him. At a certain point, politics seemed to become more about um, an entertainment thing than politics, than, than solving people's problems. And, you know, Trump is an entertainer. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly 
disagreed with virtually everything he did over what I consider four horrible years, uh, you know, but he was not boring. I will not criticize him for being boring. And, you know, he certainly made me pay attention um, as far as the whole First Amendment free speech thing. Uh, I am a First Amendment purist. I spent my early years in journalism, in college journalism. Uh, I was testing the limits of, uh, of the First Amendment. And um, I love the First Amendment. You know, the First Amendment has allowed me to make a living as a writer by, you know, writing the kind of books that, that's, you know, say in the 1950s, the 1960s, probably could not have been published for censorship reasons. Um, I, I dislike cancel culture. Uh, I, I just, you know, it's, it's stupid, you know, that, uh, you know, the answer to bad speech is more speech, you know, not Absolutely. canceling people. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a lot of sympathy for most people who have been canceled. And then you get into like thorny problems with um, like vaccinations and people, you know, spreading the disinformation about, about vaccinations. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the answer to that is, I think the, the disinformation about vaccinations, about what happened on January 6th, I think, you know, that's poisonous to, uh, you know, the, with the vaccinations, it's literally poisonous with uh, January 6th. It's, um, it, it's metaphysically poisonous. Uh, but, you know, there's a real problem with bad information getting out in social media. Uh, you know, I think people who purposely do that, you know, not so much with like, you know, expressing their opinions on January 6th that, you know, if somebody's going to say, oh, it's, uh, it's a bunch of tourists who visited the Capitol that, you know, other people have to say that's not true and explain why with the vaccinations, I think it's vital to get the population vaccinated and the the bad information being spread on social media has to somehow be stopped. I am really sick of living under pandemic conditions that, you know, I do not want to have to start wearing a mask again all the time. I do not want to have to start staying indoors all the time. And, uh, you know, that in my lifetime, I have never come across anything like this. And, um, the country, the world has got to get vaccinated and, uh, you know, something has to be done about the bad information going out over Facebook and Twitter and wherever else it's going out. And uh, I don't know what the answer is. I am opposed to censorship, right. but, you know, something has to be done. And, you know, that's where I stand on cancel culture and, uh, and social media and disinformation. Well, you, 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 I think we completely agree on, on the, uh, the censorship and First Amendment stuff. I think where, where I would challenge you on the vaccine stuff is the, well, the situation itself is so evolving, right? So we have, um, well, for example, you had someone like Kamala Harris who, who said that she would never trust a vaccination coming out of the Trump administration, right? And then, and now you have the complete opposite reaction of, oh, no, no, you have to take the, I've taken the vaccine. You have to take the vaccine no matter what. And but then we also have the issue of 
suppressing negative side, negative side effects associated with the vaccine, which has happened. They've taken down uh, people's posts and comments regarding negative um, side effects they've experienced through it. And I mean, obviously everything has a side effect, even if it's less than 1% of the population, there's always going to be side effects, anything you do. Of course, this vaccine was experimental vaccine. Um, they're completely immune from liability, right? The big pharma companies. So having it open on discussion about it is, is fine. You're going to in invariably get people um, saying untrue things about it that, as they do about everything. But the answer I think is, is what you said in the beginning, which is just having facts to rebuke those stories. And yes, they're not going to get to every single person, but allowing every person to make up their own mind on it and, and saying, okay, well, for those of you who say that, you know, the vaccine is killing 90% of people, that's clearly untrue. And here are the facts that support it, right? Um, and I haven't seen that. But what I have seen as well is people like uh, Brett Weinstein speaking about the, the vaccines and um, speaking about the, the other treatments available like ivermedicine and that being uh, taken off of YouTube. Um, so I, you know, I, I think, I think your first, your first premise is the way to go, which is just, we're going to have to live with people saying stupid shit in a free society. And we can't just be able to decide, okay, well, yeah, but on that one thing, we gotta, you know, we gotta make sure that no one can, can take a opposite approach. No one can be a dissenter on that one thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, you know, like you just said, you know, bad information should be met with good information and it's a 24 seven job. Yep. Um, you know, I don't want to spend my life on the internet, uh, you know, telling people what's true and what's not true. I mean, sometimes I don't know, you know, I can't right. tell the, the, the difference, but you know, when it comes to the vaccine, I mean, I, I couldn't wait to get vaccinated. I was glad to be vaccinated. I thought the thing was finally going to be over and it yeah, just like doesn't look that way now. I, I just, you know, I don't like living this way. Yeah. And, uh, but we're also getting mixed messaging in terms of what we were promised with, you know, vaxxed or mask. And now like, no, well, actually you have to wear a mask sometimes, you know, and, um, you know, again, with, with uh, some, there are people, many people on Twitter, including Kamala and others, uh, the vice president, who were expressed skepticism of the vaccine and now are saying, oh my God, you have to take it now. Um, that it just, you can understand why people, why they've given so much room for people to be either A, honestly confused about it or B, um, make statements that are plausibly true or untrue uh, because the handling of the messaging around it has itself constantly changed as well. So, but anyways, I, I think, I think the, uh, I think I, I'm really refreshed to see people like you who don't share most of my opinions on things still say, yeah, I'm a first amendment purist this is the, our most important right, because every other right derives from this. Um, and, you know, we're, we're not going to just banish people just because they have controversial opinions, because most interesting, revolutionary, innovative thoughts come off from controversial opinions about things. So, yeah, I think no, absolutely. I, uh, I agree with that 100%. And, you know, I think that porn stars should be allowed to address right-wing conferences and left-wing conferences and you know if there's uh, underage people there then you know they shouldn't be committing pornographic acts but uh 
you know, let them express their political opinions. Who cares if they're a foreign star? What's your What's your opinion on on the industry in general? And you can speak to either based on your experience or just as an onlooker now. In terms of if you think, in terms of if if you think that it's a, it's been a net a net positive or net negative for society, porn as it is today, for example, because obviously today. Um, it's far more ubiquitous than when you were in there. It's everywhere, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds. And there's no way to stop them from getting it. There's just, I mean, you have parental controls, but every, everyone, everyone knows their way around that. Um, you have, you know, you have, you have some porn stars who you know, talk about being empowering for women. And then I remember I was watching this interview with another one who was like the most famous one uh, of late, what was her name? Uh, oh, Lana Rhodes, talking about how, how, um, demeaning it was to her and other women that's why she left um and then you have you know there's obviously been a few women who have uh particularly as of late have committed suicide who are in the industry um what what's your sort of take from from both the inside perspective and now from a sort of just you know civilian perspective of of its role in society today over the course of uh 16 years I probably interviewed several hundred porn stars and I would talk to them during the interviews about all kinds of things. And, um, I never had anybody say to me that, you know, they were forced to do something they didn't want to do that. You know, nobody I spoke to said they felt coerced or anything like that. Uh, you know, they were doing what they wanted to do. You know, these were people, for the most part, they had at the most a high school, um, you know, they graduated from high school and uh, they were, they, before going into porn, they worked at Burger King, they worked at McDonald's, they had, you know, lousy minimum wage jobs mm -hmm. and they found their way into a career where they were making a fortune, you know, especially right. compared to the, to the minimum wage right. that, they were making before and they emphasized they you know most of them virtually all of them emphasized that nobody ever forced them to do anything mm -hmm. and you know they would say things like porn empowered me mm -hmm. and uh you know i could see that when you're going from you know from flipping burgers at mcdonald's to you know getting paid a thousand dollars a day to pose for a camera uh you might feel empowered um Things have changed. You know, I left the industry in 1999 and never looked back. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm very happy to be out of it. I'm, you know, very happy to be doing what I'm doing now, which is, you know, writing full time. And uh, uh, virtually all the people, except for one person who I worked with in the 80s and 90s, they were either forced out hmm. because of. Uh, constant budget cuts pressure, or, right. you know they quit because it was just you know getting just not a good place to work right, that, right you know there were years yeah i'd say of the 16 years there were five years maybe you know maybe seven where you know i was actually having fun and you know this seemed like you know not a bad job i was you know getting paid a reasonable salary i was traveling to europe i was traveling to california i was you know meeting all kinds of of interesting people. And, uh, yeah, I thought that I was producing, you know, qu qu I was producing quality material when I could. And, uh, yeah, I, I didn't mind doing it, you know, by the, 
the last part after Lou Peretta bought the company and it became an assembly line business. Um, mm-hmm. I hated it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't wait to finally leave. And I finally did. Um, do you know, by the way, how they still make money with, with everything being online for free? Like, I, I never understood the economics of that. I don't know if you have insight on that. Yeah. Well, I was getting around to that, that, you know, all the people who I was working with, they're no longer doing mm-hmm. it except for one person. He now makes, you know, he, uh, this is the character in the book. I call him um, a singer. Is he singer in the book? That's mm-hmm. not his real name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he is still working in porn. And my understanding is that he makes most of his money on, uh, tw- on Twitter promoting dominatrixes for like these, uh, these large internet porn corporations uh, mm-hmm. based in places like Hungary. Yeah, uh, Luxembourg, not based yeah. here. And, you know, I don't think it's like a great living, but, you know, he's making a living doing that. He makes uh, a living publishing his own pornographic novels and he gets by, but mm-hmm. he is the only one I know who is still doing it after all these years. Uh, it, when I first started working in magazines in 1983, there was uh, a lot of money going around. You know, people were mm-hmm. buying magazines. There was the whole phone sex thing. And right, you know, right. there was just constant money flowing in. You know, you were getting paid a decent salary. You were getting constant raises, sometimes, you know, very nice raises. And uh, uh, it went on like that for some time. And, you know, times were good. But now in terms of what's out there now is porn a plus or a minus for society. I don't know. You know, I have looked at what's out there. Um, there's a lot of violent crap that has nothing to do with pleasure. That you know, sex to me is interesting when it involves pleasure. And you look at these things, and whatever's going on mm-hmm. has nothing to do with pleasure. Right. And uh, you know, certainly children have more access to porn than they you know certainly did when i was a kid that you know if you couldn't get a hold of uh of a magazine then you weren't going to see any porn you know now it's just out there on the internet Mm -hmm. and i would think that a lot of the stuff that if you're a kid and you're watching a lot of the stuff that's out there in the porn internet uh it could be mind warping it could be confusing it could be traumatic yeah whatever they're learning about sex, that's not what sex is about. And uh, I don't think it's good that, you know, if you go on one of these tube sites, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to find a video of people experiencing pleasure. And, uh, you know, I don't know what pleasure you can get out of, of watching, you know, somebody spitting on somebody, somebody, you know, somebody slapping somebody, uh, somebody, you know, having intercourse when it just does not look like the people are feeling pleasure. Right. right. So, you know, that's what I'm seeing out there. And, uh, that is, you know, good porn for sure. is erotica is. Yeah. and I'm not seeing erotica. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very true. What you said, it's, uh, being quite dominated by sort of violence behavior, um, which particularly, you know, I was, I was born in 91. So I was sort of the the first generation that sort of, you know, grew up with it where kids were starting to watch it in high school, right? Like online, because we were pretty much the first ones. 
um, my age group. And now it's just like, it's gone so much more ubiquitous because I was still in the AOL days, you know, with, with a dial up. And now it's just like, everyone has high speed internet on their phones, on their laptops. Uh, the, the porn itself has got much more violent. Um, used to be much more vanilla when I was, when I was, a, you know, in high school, for example. Uh, things have changed rapidly in the last 10, 15 years. And you have, so it's just, it's, uh, there, there is certainly a troubling aspect to it as well. And then you have the whole OnlyFans component, which is more of a uh, individuals selling their own stuff. And, and that's, that's got some crazy consequences as well, because some people don't exactly realize that this is going to be on the internet forever. And now it's just so easy to make that mistake. Whereas, you know, with, with the porn industry, when they used to go through the, you know, you go through a magazine shoot or something like that. You know, it's a whole, it's a whole process. There are many steps along the way where you could have gone like, okay, actually uh, maybe this isn't such a good idea. Cause it's going to may, you know, haunt me when I'm like 40 and a mom and all that. Uh, but now it's just like, you know, click of your phone, you're a porn star uh, on, on only fans and, and that they'll never go away either. So it's been some, some really uh, crazy consequences. I don't think we fully worked out yet as to how that's going to work you know, with and how it plays yeah, out. Yeah, that, yeah, I, uh, I went from, uh, you know, looking at porn eight hours a day, five days a week, because somebody was paying me to look at porn right. eight hours a day, five days a week to, <laughs> uh, you know, I talked to my friends who, you know, still work in it, Izzy Singer, you know, I talked to him quite a bit. And, you know, people who uh, were down in the trenches with me for all those years. And, you know, I will look at what's out there. And, you know, it's just, uh, why does anybody want to watch this? I mean, it's just, it's not pleasurable. And I don't, again, like, you know, the free speech thing, I have no idea what the answer was. If I had any answers to these questions, I'd probably be running for office, but you know, I, I, I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you one, one uh, sort of last thing based on your, your other book about John Lennon, because I'm a huge John Lennon fan as well. Um, what's you your, are? Yeah, yeah, I have a oh, picture of him in my bedroom. Uh, you know, I, I think he's the most talented musician, the most significant musician ever. Um, was, I mean, even even if you take the Beatles stuff away, which were like the most influential, significant musical act basically in human history, his solo career was still one of the most amazing, influential careers, and that only lasted for 10 years, unfortunately. What was the uh, what's what's the biggest um, misconception about him that I haven't read? I haven't read your whole John Lennon book. I I uh, briefly saw it. Um, it seems to me that it sort of contrasted with my view of him, which was more as a more sort of balanced person that was sort of like a uh, you know spiritually well balanced and was just cranking out hits and and had his had his shit together and it seems to me like in your book it seems to be that his, his right prior to his death he was a troubled person what what yeah. what's what's the what was he like particularly right before his death and well yoko ono has spent the past 40 years creating and broadcasting this myth of uh you know john the happy house husband baking bread and uh and raising Sean, that the time period that I'm most familiar with are the five years, six years from like the beginning of 1975, when uh, 
he decided you know, when his his record contracts ended and he went into uh to isolation into into seclusion he dropped out of the record business and uh his son sean was born and then in 1980 he emerged again and uh, released the double fantasy album and then he was murdered um that you know, in the book you know it's not like he was uh not raising sean that you know he he certainly tried to be uh a good father but he had servants who did most of the hard work that was required to raise a child. Um, he spent a lot of time by himself in his room, smoking weed, watching TV, sleeping, recording his dreams, keeping a journal, thinking about Paul McCartney. Um, he was, he would occasionally- What did he think about Paul McCartney? He was incredibly jealous of Paul McCartney's success that while you know he was doing very little while he was locked up in the Dakota um Paul McCartney was putting out one record after another and you know having one hit after another uh you would he would turn on the radio he'd heard you know he'd hear one of McCartney's songs that you know every time Yoko pulled off some great business deal like uh they bought a, a fantastic house or she sold uh, a cow for a record-breaking $400,000, and this was in the papers, you know, he would consider this like a great victory um, over McCartney, a great publicity victory. But, you know, he thought about Paul all the time, and it was finally Paul's uh, record album, McCartney II, that really got Lennon back into gear to make music and uh, there's a song on McCartney too called Coming Up where he addresses John Lennon and he's basically calling for a Beatles reunion. You know, he sings, McCartney sings something like, uh, uh, I know that we can get together, stick around and see. Um, Lennon, when, when Lennon heard that song, he, he certainly realized that McCartney was talking to him through the music and uh, he responded, with a song that was not released on Double Fantasy because it didn't fit in with the Double Fantasy theme. It's called Face It. And, um, uh, you know, that is Lennon's answer to McCartney's, uh, you know, to McCartney's let's have a a Beatles reunion. And like, you know, Lennon says things like, uh, I'm looking for oblivion with one eye on the Hall of Fame. And, that Lennon was sure of one thing, and he made this clear in his diaries that the Beatles were were in his past. There would be no Beatles reunion. He wanted no part of that. Hmm. And um, you know, who knows what would have happened if John had lived? But you know, it was pretty clear his state of mind in 1980 and before that, from 1975 to 1980, was that he just wanted no part of the Beatles. And yet, you know, it was McCartney's music that got him back into gear and uh, inspired him to create all the music that went on to Double Fantasy and the posthumous albums that followed. Oh, that's fascinating. And, you know, what's surprising about Lennon, too, and you don't see this in a lot of the official biographies, but um, he was very into 
all this occult stuff like tarot and numerology and astrology and you know his his journals are filled with that kind of thing that um he thought that the horoscopes in town and country magazine were the were the most accurate horoscopes and every month he would clip uh, his horoscope libra for him aquarius for yoko and you know he would paste it in his journal and he'd comment on it and you know generally find them very accurate and uh he had a, a full-time tarot card reader that this guy his real name was uh john green he called himself charlie swan that was his his tarot card reading name um he would come to the dakota virtually every day and he'd read the cards for yoko and he'd read the cards for john and uh you know they just based a large portion of their life on tarot numerology magic that yoko went to Colombia. it's in uh, south america and she paid this um colombian bruja lena i think it was like sixty thousand dollars to teach her how to cast magic spells and you know magic works if you believe that magic works if you think that this wealthy powerful woman put a spell on on you uh you're gonna believe it and you know it's gonna have some kind of effect and that's the way magic works if you believe in magic, magic works. And, you know, they were just really into that kind of thing. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, he, he was a very alternative lifestyle kind of guy. And I, I yeah. suppose when you, when you have time on your hands, <laughs> when you have time on your hands and, and you're doing some drugs and uh, it could lead you to some interesting places as, as we see today with the internet. <laughs> yeah. And you know, John practiced uh, yoga too, that aside from the fact that he thought that yoga was good exercise, he thought that uh, if he, um, he practiced it long enough and hard enough that he would literally merge with God and become uh, a psychic being who could fly and he would know everything past, present and future. So and, I guess DMT know, wasn't a thing back then. Pardon me? DMT. He probably didn't. DMT. <laughs> about DMT, right? DMT. Um, no, tell me. It's like the. Uh, it's like the. I mean, Joe Rogan talks about it all the time as well. It's like the. They call it the gentleman's trip. So it's. It's like a. It's basically the most crazy hallucinogenic experience that one person can have. Wait, um, it's a drug. It's a drug. It lasts. But here's the thing. It only lasts like for EMT, about. DMT. You're saying. DMT. Yeah. DMT. Oh, it only lasts for about fifteen to twenty minutes. Um, it, no, even shorter than that sometimes, seven to 15 minutes. Um, and it's the cr most crazy hallucinogenic experience ever. I've never taken it. Uh, uh -huh. but, but I was about to ask you if you ever tried. I've, I've not, I've always been, I've always been curious about, it, but it, never taken it. And, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of videos of you know, people like Joe Rogan or Mike Tyson, or I, I've known a couple of people who have, and their, their sentiments are all consistent, which is that it's the only thing that truly takes you to a different world. And it's, it's impossible to talk about because they'll say things like you see, you see colors that you've never seen before. Uh, you see shapes you've never seen before. I had this one friend who told me that he had a, he had a quilt on his bed and every box of the quilt was a different part of his life from birth till death running in parallel, uh, like, like, like a, as like a, as like a clip. And so, I mean, here are all, all sorts of, crazy like that but is this uh, uh, a natural substance or a chemical it I, I it it is a no it is a natural substance um we we have it um it, it, human beings have it in their system um but 
I guess it's, it's highly concentrated. There's another thing called ayahuasca, which is the more, that's like a, I don't know if you've heard of that one, but that's, it's a derivative of that where ayahuasca is like a thing that these Native American tribes would do. They, they have it in a, uh, in a drink and, and that one lasts for several hours, but it's a more mellow trip. Whereas DMT is like, you go to level 11 in an instant and then you're back, you're back down to earth in like seven to 15 minutes. Yeah, I just haven't been keeping up with the latest drugs. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but no, that sounds interesting. So this is something that, that it grows, it's plant, and you eat it. Um, the the ayahuasca version, yeah, it, it's it derives from a plant. The DMT, I, I suppose they they make it in a lab to sort of I don't know isolate the the chemical component of it. Oh, so and it is that, man-made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. I think the yeah the drug would be a, would be I think is a chemical is a derivative um, yeah not not entirely sure of the but you you, you smoke it like a, you can smoke it like a joint and it apparently gets you oh okay gets, gets you to uh, John Lennon land I guess <laughs> yeah well you know the drugs that Lennon liked you know he always liked smoking weed he smoked weed a lot um, when he could get mushrooms he liked mushrooms yeah and you talk he, about acid they ever they. I'm not in those last five years. No, that the only hallucinogenic he took in those five years was mushrooms. And, uh, and he would occasionally indulge in cocaine and uh, he would very occasionally still take heroin and, you know, kind of hate himself for doing it. But, you know, he would do it on occasion. And, uh, you know, they try to make it sound like, you know, the last five years he was just uh a clean living house husband and right. that's just it's it's that's just not true yeah yeah that's the impression i got cool well it was it was a uh really fascinating discussion and uh so glad to have you on yeah we covered a lot of ground and uh i learned something <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, you can go youtube dmt videos after this you'll you'll see some interesting shit <laughs> yeah. all right good yeah, yeah. where can Thanks people find me on yeah, thanks for having me on, sure. and I'm I'm really glad you enjoyed Beaver Street, and I hope to that you get a chance to read my other two books. Absolutely. Where can people find you? Um, on my website is the best place to start, RobertRosenNYC.com. Okay. And you, you know my books are in all the usual places: Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, you know, any place you get books. Excellent. All right, Robert. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast. And give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks again, and we will be back next week. Oh, man. And probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.